Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environment and social justice stories. Today's story, War Costs the Earth, was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX, Canberra, on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. Today on Earth Matters, we look at the costs of war to the environment in Australia and to the global climate. The staggering financial cost of war and pose the question, how can we end the endless wars and build a more positive, sustainable future? I'm talking to Catherine Kelly, the Canberra representative of the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, and Dr Sue Wareham, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Catherine, you led a workshop at the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference recently about the cost of war to the environment. What are some of the things you talked about? There's huge costs to the environment and they cross all the different areas of the environment from the atmosphere, land and freshwater rivers and the oceans. One of the biggest impacts is actually on the atmosphere. And one of the indirect things is that we're spending so much money and resources on a war which should be directed to addressing climate change. There are so many impacts that we you know, could spend days talking about this. To start with the atmosphere, the US military is one of the biggest consumers of energy in the world. It's estimated about 10% of global emissions probably come from the military. And that isn't counted in the IPCC reports. So there's a huge gap there, which is disastrous for trying to plan to address climate change. And another really important thing is that we don't have to report emissions from the military outside of our national borders, or the US military doesn't. Marty Brannigan, in his book, Global Warming, Militarism and Nonviolence, says that he's had from the army chief that the military blueprint here isn't reported. Our military's use of energy outside of Australia, it looks like that's not reported at all. And the US military and probably every other country's military outside of their own borders is not uh, reported. So that's all the trucks and planes and and moving around, transportation. Mm. And all those things, fighter planes, tanks, warship destroyers, are hugely energy intensive. They're way more energy intensive than, you know, normal cars, buses, whatever. The US military in Iraq, in the war there, used as much energy as daily as the whole population of Bangladesh, which is over 165 million people. So on a daily basis, the consumption in the war in Iraq was equivalent to the whole of Bangladesh's population's use. It's, it's not, unbelievable. It's not something we've heard a lot about, is it? No, no, it's not. The IPCC really need to be looking at this. We really need to be pushing to have these emissions reported under the Kyoto Protocol. Or, you know, the US is not a signatory to that, but anyway, reporting to the Paris Agreement now. So that's a huge cost to the environment. Weather manipulation, which was done in the Vietnam War. The US seeded the clouds, and it happened that the, one of the worst floods in Vietnam in 1971 was the same year that the US had done most of their cloud seeding and rain, you know, promoting efforts and manipulating the weather. 
for military purposes, you know, is a horrendous idea. And of course there was the terrible defoliation that happened in Vietnam. What was that about? Agent Orange and other chemicals were used to defoliate the area so that the North Vietnamese forces wouldn't have anywhere to hide. It's estimated that between the wars in 1945 and 82 in Vietnam, that 80% of Vietnam's forest cover was destroyed. There are horrendous impacts on people from those chemicals, but wildlife would also have been decimated. That's right. I read that the biodiversity in those areas that have been defoliated was much, much lower than in the places that haven't. Mind you, there are still some beautiful national parks in Vietnam. There was a wildlife study published in Nature early this year, and they found that in Africa, animals such as lions, elephants, giraffes, that the exposure to war would hinder a population's ability to maintain itself and that conflict frequency consistently predicted wildlife decline. Some good news here is that in Mozambique and Rwanda that uh, efforts by government officials, scientists and conservation experts have helped restore wildlife populations. Yeah, and what about closer to home? There's been a contamination of defence sites. Do you know about that? That's right. Our AAF Air Force bases in around the country, but ones that have been studied most, I think, are in Williamtown near Newcastle, Tyndall near Catherine in the Northern Territory and Oakey in Queensland, have been contaminated with firefighting foams. These are chemicals called perfluorooctane sulfonate and perfluorooctanoic acid, which have been associated with kidney cancer, testicular cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, pregnancy-induced hypertension, and they also affect you know, biota in the water. These chemicals have contaminated the land and the water and the groundwater around these bases, and people, you know, their houses have lost value, they, they can't use the produce that they've been growing in their gardens, they can't drink the groundwater, use the groundwater. So there's three class actions going on these now, And they're still doing investigation on about another 12 bases around the country for this contamination. Was there a clean-up effort? Well, it's still going on now. It's very much current. And these chemicals, they don't degrade, so you can't really get rid of them. That's the worst thing. Of course, the other sort of military pollution in Australia is radioactive fallout. Maralinga, Dr Sue Wareham, can you tell me something about that? Yes, the... Effects of nuclear weapons testing, which occurred over decades around the world, particularly atmospheric testing, has been pretty devastating. And one of the things that's been noted in most places where nuclear weapons have been tested is that they've been tested in the lands of marginalised or Indigenous people. That's been a fairly constant feature. And that was certainly the case in Australia where the Aboriginal lands of the people in the Maralinga region uh, were affected. The people themselves were affected and the land there is still affected by that radioactive contamination. If we look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, also where uh, two nuclear weapons were actually exploded in wartime, the, the effects on the people there, let alone other forms of life, still ongoing. And cancers, in, increased rates of cancers are still um, monitored and studied in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So those cities certainly haven't seen the end of the results of the contamination of their cities. You know, a couple of years ago, I came across an article in the Scotsman newspaper, that was a 2011 article, about this cancer resulting from nuclear fallout 
when dirty hydrogen bombs were tested in the atmosphere during the 50s and 60s. There was an 11-year study done of bones of dead children by a hospital in Scotland that found very high levels of strontium-90 in the bones of children, up to six times the background level. And the peak year of the most dangerous year for babies was 1964. And hey, guess what? I was born in 1964 in Scotland. Mm. So it rains a lot. The rain washes down the particles out of the atmosphere and they can become lodged in the bones and muscles of children. So, yes, yes, it's really driven me to live my life to the full as these cancers can emerge in people's 50s and 60s. Yes, it's pretty horrifying. And one of the major problems in monitoring all of this is that a cancer induced by radioactivity is not in any way different from a cancer induced by anything else. So it's very hard to say this cancer is from radioactivity, that cancer wasn't, and that makes um, assessment of this problem all the more difficult. There was all the tests in the Pacific which have had horrendous impacts on the people living there and no doubt the ocean environment as well. Those are covered in a recent film by John Pilger called The Coming War on China, and he goes into a lot of the history of those tests in the Pacific and the the populations having to be relocated and the waste that's still there on some of those islands. One of the things we haven't talked about is depleted uranium. Wikipedia has a pretty good section on the environmental impact of war, and it says here... In a three-week period of conflict in Iraq during 2003, it was estimated that over a 1,000 tonnes of depleted uranium munitions were used mostly in the cities, and that this stuff remains weakly radioactive for a long time and can produce an aerosol when it's crushed or impacted and then can potentially contaminate wide areas around the impact sites, which can be inhaled by civilians and military personnel. Capella are singing the song through today's show, a message from Mother Earth in their An Organism Called Earth album. You're with Earth Matters. And we're talking about the costs of war, how war costs the earth. And now with Dr. Sue Wareham, the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, we'll be talking about the financial cost of war. If you're spending money on war and and preparing to go to war, then that's money that you can't spend on health or education or renewable energy or other social essential services. So there are, there are huge costs. Globally at the moment, the cost is around $1.7 trillion. That's um, $1,700 billion every year is spent by countries around the world on war and preparing to go to war. Uh, the US is, no surprise, uh, by far the biggest spender, far and away bigger than Russia, China or any of, any of the other large countries. In Australia, we spend about $95 million every day 
on either going to war or preparing to go to war. It's about um, 30, 34 point something billion dollars annually. So about $95 million every day on preparing to go to war and on conduct of our wars. So imagine what we could do with that. If we had an extra $95 million every day, every day of the year, on our healthcare system or our education or on remediation of the Murray-Darling water water system. Uh, listeners could think of all sorts of other things that could be done with that money that would really advance our environmental health and our human well-being. But instead, we spend it on the destructive activity of warfare. I'm talking to Catherine Kelly. The money that we're spending on defence, probably a lot of that does come from our aid program, which has been reduced drastically over recent years. The UN set a target of about 0.7% of GDP or national income that should be spent on overseas aid. Now, there's six countries in the world that are doing this now. That's um, Denmark, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden and the UK have all reached that target. Australia is at one of the lowest levels ever, and we spend only 0.23% of our GDP or national income on foreign aid. So we were up higher than that. We were getting up in the top level amongst the OECD countries, but now we're, I think, 20th this year will be out of the 29 OECD countries we're spending on foreign aid. So that is appalling in terms of our assistance to other countries. And aid is a peace-building tool. One of the things that came out of the most recent Defence White Paper, which was in 2016, was, well, firstly, the assessment that the prospect of any country invading Australia in the foreseeable future is pretty remote, i.e. there aren't any enemies who are likely to invade it. So this instantly raises a question, well, why are we spending all this money on so-called defence? Is it defence or is it offence? We have no country that's likely to invade us, and yet we're spending $195 billion over the next decade to protect ourselves against non-existent enemies. Now, it's debatable uh, what all that defence money is for, and almost certainly it's to join in wars with our ally, the United States, which opens up all, all sorts of additional questions about in whose interests is all of this. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I've heard that Malcolm Turnbull wants to increase our defence spending. Yes, our Prime Minister wants Australia to be in one of, one of the big weapons exporters in the world. Why do we want to make our fortune as a nation in war profiteering? Many people have become quite alarmed at that prospect, that that's the vision of our Prime Minister for our country, that we can be a big war profiteer, which means we have a vested interest in war and instability. We're not going to have any interest in promoting peace at all if our interest is in fact selling weapons. Well, I was wondering where that money comes from too. Did they borrow it? Is this a debt for future generations? I don't think that's been clarified, Beck, at least uh, not to my knowledge, but um, the announcement of $3.8 billion for a facility to help weapons exporters is pretty alarming, again, when we look at all the areas of social need in Australia and we're setting aside $3.8 billion to help generally large companies who are already profiting hugely from warfare. Do they happen to be American companies? Well, the biggest is Lockheed Martin, which is a US-based uh, company. It's absolutely huge in terms of its annual profit. And now, hasn't Lockheed Martin just started up a joint cooperation with Melbourne University? 
Yes, Lockheed Martin has, which in itself is very controversial. It's a matter of great concern to a number of the students at Melbourne University. And given that universities are meant to be places of learning and the advancement of human welfare, to have the university used for a weapons company is really of a lot of concern to uh, many of the students and to others in Melbourne and in the Australian community. And Lockheed Martin is also the company building the F-35s that we're spending billions of dollars on and which there's huge problems with technologically and Canada has reneged on its contract for those and we're going ahead with buying these planes which may or may not be able to fly and may or may not be useful by the time they're actually delivered. The inroads that weapons companies are making into Australian and other countries, um, schools and universities are really very worrying when we see the weapons companies nabbing our best brains, best young people, offering them the best facilities because they can afford them in order to, to promote the weapons industry. That's a, a matter of great concern and we do see this happening in our universities with scholarships and even in our secondary schools with various forms of funding. And what other impacts are there on the natural world? Well, the natural world is really collateral damage in any conflict, isn't it? There was one study that was done in Azerbaijan where they found that 47 species of plants and 19 species of trees have been driven to extinction over the you know, decades of the war there. Landmines and cluster bombs which spread death and destruction to people obviously impact on wildlife as well. In uh, Afghanistan, the snow leopards and other species are threatened with extinction there because of these bombs. In its 2006 invasion of Lebanon, Israel dropped more than one million cluster bombs there and that would have played havoc too with any wildlife and other domestic animals there. One wonders what the power of environmental law is on this. I know that the UN did a study on that, of whether environmental law could be used to protect the environment against the impacts of war, but they found that it was generally too weak and the armies were always saying, mm. oh, well, it was necessary, they had to, you know, wreck the river or bomb the land. I don't think environmental law would get a look in when you've got a war like Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan. Perhaps that's what has been said in long past decades about the human impacts of war, and yet now we do see people in court in the, what is it, the... International Criminal Court. That's right. Perhaps there will be more environmental vandals of war in the court there. That would be fantastic to see. Some of the biggest impacts too were in the Iraq war. In the first Iraq war was the biggest oil spill in marine history. When the Iraqis, when they were retreating, they opened the valves from wells, pipelines and tankers and 400 to 500 million gallons of oil poured into the Persian Gulf killing thousands, tens of thousands of birds as well as fish. It covered 740 kilometres of coastline and 4,000 square miles off the Persian Gulf. And that's the biggest oil spill, even bigger than the Exxon Valdez and the other ones that we think about. That's the biggest oil spill in marine history. On top of that, there were 700 wellheads set on fire in, in the Second Iraq War. So that would have constituted a massive greenhouse gas blast to the atmosphere as well. I wonder if anybody else can remember the despair we felt when we were hearing that on the news at the time. I am the wood, the forest, the trees. I give the bonds, take back the leaves. Remember, I give 
There are some very scary impacts of nuclear war, Dr Sue Wareham, aren't there? The whole environmental impact of, of any use of nuclear weapons would be absolutely catastrophic. There's one um, particular issue which has come to light, or at least come to light again in recent years, and that's the issue of nuclear winter. The theory, which is very well developed and credible and almost certain to be valid, is that in the event of even so-called small nuclear war, with perhaps a, the use of a 100 or so nuclear weapons, the amount of particulate matter that would be drawn up into the stratosphere from burning cities would be such that it would block sunlight for years, literally years, probably up to a decade or so, reducing agricultural output and leading to global famine, affecting probably up to 2 billion people. So the issue of nuclear weapons is alarming at the moment. Our risk is higher than most of us realise. We've got away since 1945 with no use of these weapons, again, probably by sheer luck, and we need to get rid of these weapons. And there's some very good news on that front. With the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was concluded at the United Nations last year, it has not yet come into effect. We're waiting for sufficient countries to sign the new so-called Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. Australia has not yet signed this treaty, pretty shamefully. But we, we in Australia, we being ICANN, International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and others are working hard to ensure that the Australian government signs this Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty as an essential step towards getting rid of these worst of all weapons. And if people want to jump in and be part of this, where do they look? The ICANN website would welcome more volunteers, readers, supporters, donors, whatever. That's www.icanw.org.au. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network website might be one that people would look at too for activities that are going on and working groups that are being formed on a lot of these issues. So that's an umbrella group for Australian peace groups, isn't it? Yes, IPAN has about 40 groups around Australia, which are church groups, community groups, unions, and peace groups, as members of the organisation. So what can we do about this? Dr Sue Wareham and Catherine Kelly are here with me talking to Earth Matters. How can we move beyond endless wars, destruction of humans, destruction of nature? What's to be done? One of the things that I think we need to do here in Australia is think before we let our government go to war. And there's a movement to ensure that before Australian troops can be sent to war, that the Australian Parliament has to actually debate and vote on the matter. And this is a long overdue reform. We see the ease with which John Howard took us to war in 2003, a catastrophic adventure. We need to change that. Australians for War Powers Reform is working to change that to ensure that before Australian troops can be sent to war, Parliament has to debate the issue. And when there's debate, important issues need to come up, such as what is this going to cost? What's the purpose of it? What's the strategy? What's the exit strategy? How are civilians going to manage? And perhaps even the environment might get a look in there. What is the impact on the environment going to be? All these things need to be talked about and thought about and planned before we go to war. And shockingly, that does not happen in Australia right now. It's very odd. Other countries, other developed, advanced countries do discuss these things in Parliament. It's like Australia is still a colonial baby of Britain and the USA. 
yes, Australia is way behind most of the rest of the world in this respect. Most countries, most democratic countries at least, and we uh, we are a democracy here, um, and yet we don't debate going to war. Most democratic countries are ahead of Australia in this respect. And we need to catch up. We need to have some reform of the way in which Australia can be involved in wars. And I'd also like to add that we do need people in peace organisations around the country. Often there's a small group of people and we desperately need others to join in and just help organising events and educational activities to bring this awareness of these impacts of perpetual war to the general Australian public because we're sort of walking into a 1984 world where we've got war either with this continent or that continent and Big Brother watching us. So we really need people to come along to the meetings, just help out to get the word out. Numbers really count, don't they? It really helps if you've got numbers around you on the streets and in doing your office work and organising for mm. peace. There is an inquiry going on at the moment for the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade, which is looking at having a bipartisan agreement between Liberal and Labor on defence policy matters. Now, this is appalling because we have little enough uh, discussion of defence policy as it is. And as Sue has said, we, we don't even debate going to war. So more dif bipartisan policy on defence formalised in this agreement would be you know, a drastic step backwards for Australian discussion on, on our foreign policy. In addition to that, I think one of the most insidious things about our focus on war and going to war under the title of so-called defence is that it's a real distraction from our real and serious threats, primarily climate destruction. You've been listening to Earth Matters, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Today on the program, we discussed the cost of war, with Catherine Kelly from the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network and Dr Sue Wareham, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And I'm Beck Horridge. This edition of Earth Matters was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. For Radio 3CR in Melbourne, in Wurundjeri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio or follow us on Twitter at EarthMRadio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. That's all for today's show. Thanks so much for sharing this time with us. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories. Sending you out with Ecopella. There, a message from Mother Earth. Creatures born must drink of me.